Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 256. Today's Beis Nissen, the second day of Nissen, the beginning of the hundredth year since the Histalkus of the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad, in the year Tofresh Pei, in the year 1920. So let's begin, since it's literally today, and share a few words. The Rebbe Rashab was called the Rambam of Chassidus. And the reason for that, the Friedrich Rebbe says, is because he took the sugis, the themes, the concepts of Chassidus that the Alta Rebbe founded in Chabad Chassidus, and it was developed and elaborated upon by the Mitla Rebbe and the Samach Tzedek and the Rebbe Marash, and the Rebbe Rashab organized them, sugis like the Rambam. What was the Rambam's main contribution, among many different things? In Mishnah Teda, the codification. He took everything on the laws of Shabbos and put it into Hilcha Shabbos. Everything on the laws of Yom Tev, the laws of Beis Amigdash, and organized it in subject by subject. And that's what the Rebbe Rashab did. You see it most in the Hemshech Ayin Beis, the magnum opus, the Do Samarvov, and many other discourses that the Rebbe Rashab delivered. But Ayin Beis, you see a particular emphasis. And most importantly, you see him gathering together and connecting all the various different themes and concepts of Chassidus. So that's one thing that Abra Shab contributed. Obviously, people like us cannot qualify and say what he contributed because it's an endless amount of things, but things that jump out that we were told by the Rebbe, by the Friedrich Rebbe. Second thing was the founding of the Temchit Mimim Lubavitch. Up to the point of the Rebbe Shab, till the year Tofresh Nun Zayin, which is the year 1897, Chabad and Lubavitch did not have its own yeshivas. Most of the students, all the students, went to other yeshivas. The Rebbe Rashab established the central Lubavitch yeshiva. And he explained in a entire Kuntras Yitzchayim why he did that. He did that in order to establish soldiers, a Yitzchayim Muhammad's base David, that would go out and fight the battle, the spiritual battle, of those that would become apathetic and even, um, uh, even hostile to Jewish thought and to Mashiach. And in this Kuntas, he explains the purpose of a yeshiva that would be infused with both Nigla the Teda and Primus Teda, the body and soul of Teda, to empower the next generation to deal with the challenges. And it's interesting, 1897, right? The dawn of the beginning of the 20th century which would lead to the most greatest upheavals in Jewish life and the Jewish nation in all of history. World War I, World War II, the uprooting of Jewish life that was for thousands, for over a thousand years in Europe, in Eastern Europe. And therefore, when you look at, in retrospect, you see the prof- prophetic, the prophetic um, prescience of the Rebbe Rashab in anticipating and understanding and how the later, the Friedrich Rebbe, and especially the Rebbe, took these students and turned them into actual soldiers in the fullest sense of the word, world, word, and spread all over the world outposts, teaching Teda, Yiddishkeit, Primisat Teda, and literally reviving and revitalizing Jewish life. There are many more things that can be said, but it comes on the day of a Yorzeit, as the Rebbe cites often, Ageres Akedis Simen Chof Ches, that all the Aveda, all the work, and all the activities and all the contributions of the neshama that goes up, gathered together every year in the Yorzeit and the year that Yemis Talkus, and their pale Yeshua's Bekerev Aritz.
They impact us. They bring us salvation. Even in the depths, even in the darkest parts of this universe, in the, in the depths and the plumbing, the depths of this material world, the Yeshua's of the Rebbe Rashab and this Beis Nisan, especially as we enter the 100th year, 100 years has a particular power. It would be amiss of me not to mention, and though we've spoken about this in the past, there's a tremendous Rishima that Rabbi Rifkin, who was a Heizbacher, Shtubacher by the Rebbe Rashab, writes and documents the actual last days of the Rebbe Rashab, Chaim Chayuse Ba'al Medein, extremely moving account. And uh, there he quotes something that the Rebbe would quote and explain often that the Rebbe Rashab in his last days asked that his, his bed be taken into the Zal, into the hall, the study hall, where the Rebbe Rashab would fabreng with the Bachrim, where the Rebbe Rashab said, my modem, this was in Rostov, of course, they had left Lubavitch already in the in the, in the, Tafresh I involve, basically in 19, uh, end of 1915, and here they were in Rostov, this is 1920, and he asked to be taken in to the place, and he said these words in, when he was in that hall. In his bed he said, himmel, in I go to heaven, the writings, I leave you. That itself caused a tremendous shock, tremendous um, disturbance by the family when they heard these words, to the point that they couldn't bring themselves they couldn't compose themselves. The Friedrich Rebbe was shaken. The Rebbe Rashab stared at him and said, Midas, espilus, espilus, excitement, excitement, disturbed, disturbed. Meichin, meichin. Use your mind, your mind. And from that moment on, Rabbi Rifkin writes, the, Rebbe Rashab, the Friedrich Rebbe stood like a soldier following his father's orders until the last moment. But what is the meaning of these words? We understand he's leaving us his writings, his teachings. But it goes deeper. He says, I go to heaven. He didn't want to sh- just shock people. He says, as I am in heaven, you will have me here. He was consoling them and preparing them and preempting and saying, as I am in heaven, you will have me here in my writings because I know nafshik sovis yehovis. Anoichi in the Torah, God says, I have embedded myself. I have infused myself. I have engraved myself inscribe myself in these words that's an un- anon nafshi my soul ksovis yohovis i have in 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 um, i have embedded as i said or ksovis um, yohovis in these words same thing sadikim demlidbaidum that in their writings they have inscribed themselves their souls and you want to have a rebbe it's not his picture it's not his, his stories about him these are all Important, but his essence is in his words. And that's what the Rabbeim did and the Rebbe Rashab included, writing chsidis, which is the chsidis we have. How do we honor our Rebbe? How do we connect to our Rebbe? We open up a Mayim chsidis on this day of Beis Nissen, and we still have time to do so, and we connect to his way of thinking, to his methodology. And hence, chsidis applied, which is, has to honor, is honoring, of course, a day like this, Beis Nissen, which also began the beginning of the Reb Friedrich Rebbe's Nesias, as the continuing Ashkafta uh, de Rebbe of Rabbi Rifkin describes Friedrich Rebbe's first early, first Maimer and his early leadership. So this is Beis Nissen and its application to our lives. Now let's talk a moment about this coming week. 
I should also say I want to dedicate this program in honor of Yitzchak ben Lei and Rivka Vika Bas Rachel and their children Ruth Nicole and Michal, Michael who in their support allow this program many of our other programs to grow and thrive. Thank you for that. Since I'm already making announcements, you can submit any question, any comment, anything you'd like anonymously, confidentially at our forum at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. You'll also find the archives of all our previous episodes that are time-stamped in the YouTube version on the laptop or desktop. And finally, the essays from the previous four years of the My Life Chassidus Applied Essay Contest are posted there as well. Since we're talking about the contest, we are literally one week away from announcing the winners. So we're down to the crunch time, we're down to the wire. And uh, you'll be hearing next Sunday, Mitzah Hashem, the announcement. But I want to bring up something which I found so moving to me and so powerful. Here's a book that just came to me today. Actually, right before Shabbos, I'm sorry. A book in English and in Hebrew. It says, Compilation of Essays and Topics of Chassidus. Kevitz Chiburim Neisim B'Chassidus. Half Hebrew, half English. From Beis Chanach Seminary in Svas, headed by Rabbi Yisaf Yitzchak Chitrik. And what they did was, all the students who wrote essays and submitted them this year, they actually published a book. Amazing. So I want to thank Rabbi Chitrik, I want to thank the seminary, I want to thank Rabbi Alec Friedman, who served as a mentor to these students, and the others that were involved, I'm reading from the introduction, Hadassah Mochkin, Chana Hendel, and Rivka Silberberg, and to the entire seminary staff, seminary staff, the vice principal and teachers, Nakazot, Madrichot, secretaries and technical support who supported the success of this venture. I find this to be tremendously inspiring, and many students in different schools did participate, but I think this is a great lesson for all to empower girls and show and honor their contribution. Winner is a winner, but they're all winners because they did the work, and they did what the Rebbeim wanted from us. The famous letter that I've quoted a number of times, I've made it famous actually, because it was not really known. 60 years ago from when we began the contest, and Yutas Tevis, Tavshin Tezvav, that ever writes and suggests writing essays for actually a woman's school. So I wanted to acknowledge that, and this is published in, order, in honor of Yud Aleph Nissen, honoring the Rebbe's upcoming birthday, which we shall speak about next week as well. Okay. So, now let us go to the time. This is the week we're moving closely already, two, within two weeks before Pesach. So 30 days already before Pesach is Shleshim Yem Kedem Achag, we start preparing. Two weeks, Lekul Alman, all the opinions. We are now ready after the Shchedesh Nishtun, which was when Hashem said to Moshe Rabbeinu, HaChedesh Hazelachem, this new moon, Kazer Eyu Kadesh, I'm pointing to this new moon, will be your renewal as the Jewish people leave in two weeks from now, on the 15th of Nisan. They will leave this God-forsaken place and become a nation and will march towards Sinai and become my people who will transform the world and ultimately bring Mashiach and make the world into Adira B'Tachtenim. So we're now in those two weeks. Business, and we're working toward this coming Shabbos. will be Shabbos HaGadol. Shabbos HaGadol, the great Shabbos. The different reasons for the great miracle that happened on the Shabbos, as the Alter Rebbe writes in Shulchan Aruch, in Hilchus Pesach, right in the beginning. And there are many other reasons given why it's a great Shabbos. We've spoken about that in the past. And also Shabbos Pasha Mitzayra. 
It's later than usual because of the leap year, so everything is pushed off approximately by four weeks because of the second order. So let's share a few words about Shabbos HaGadol and Mitzayr. Shabbos HaGadol, so I've spoken about this in the past, and I want to just give you references, episodes 111, 157, 206, and also about Mitzayr, episodes 64 and 209. About Beis Nishan, I should mention, I spoke about in episode 61 and 206. So, briefly, Shabbos HaGadol has many different reasons, as I said. And one of them, the one the Altar Rebbe brings, is Lamakim Mitzrayim B'Bcherayim. And that Shabbos, before Pesach, is Yud Nisan. Um, it wasn't, uh, and what happened? That, that day is when the Egyptians themselves came and rebelled against the Egyptians. So it was a transformation from within. It wasn't just God and the miracles of Moshe Rabbeinu that subdued and ultimately defeated the Egyptians. It was they themselves were transformed. There are other reasons given, but the, this is the reason Al Rebbe brings in Halacha in Shulchan Aruch. The lesson to us is very clear. When we deal with any ad- adverse adversarial situation, any adversary, or with any adversarial situation, there's getting rid of the situation and freeing ourselves. But what we really want is redemption of transformation. When the darkness itself helps support your cause, when the liability becomes an asset, then you have true redemption. And in Judaism, especially Achsidus explains things, that's what we're looking for. It's not just enough to say, okay, finish the tzara, we finish the problem. We want the problem to help us grow. Just as it says in Pasha Shmei Sabat Mitzrayim, Kasheyana Esim, Ken as they were oppressed, they flourished and thrived and blossomed. So the oppression itself brings out the strengths, the deeper strengths. And when you see the Makim Mitzrayim when you see that the darkness fights the darkness, then you know that you've really achieved the ultimate goal because that means that you have transformed. You not have just avoided, you haven't just ended the problem, you transformed it into a positive. Each one in our own lives have our own Mitzrayim, our, our own Mitzrayim from the word constraints, inhibitions, fears, limitations, insecurities. So it's one thing to free ourselves from that. But if you can use the fear, and if you use the insecurity to fight insecurity, the darkness fighting darkness, then you've achieved a far greater level of transformation. Besides the fact that then you, it's guaranteed because the enemy can't pop its head again because it's been a transformation, but also the light that comes out of that is a far more qualitatively intense light. So seeing this, the interpretation of that, that you appreciate light that comes out of darkness because there's a tra- contrast, but there's even a deeper interpretation. The, darkness that come, the light that comes out of darkness is greater than the light that comes out of light. And that's a lesson, especially in the areas of chassidus applied, personal challenges, that every challenge and every setback is an opportunity to transform it into an ally, into an asset. And that's what we're looking for. Mitzayda is the same idea. Mitzayda is, of course, a leper. Sefer Yitzhida says, Ein lamata menega. Nothing lower than leprosy, than nega. It's an affliction, a spiritual affliction, as Maimonides writes, as a result of sins, as a result of Lashon Hara, evil tongue, and all that's how it's explained. But then the same Sefer Yitzhida says, There's nothing greater than pleasure. Nega is the letters Einig. So what is just a play of words? No. 
because transformation is the key. It says, Metzeda, Mashiach will be a Metzeda. Because you want transformation, not just redemption. You want to take the negative and turn it into a positive. You want the negative to become enig. That the greatest pain, the greatest source of misery and despair becomes actually a fuel for the greatest pleasure. So the same theme, and it's called transformation. What Chassidus calls is hapche, not just iskafia, not just refraining, not just stopping the negative, but actually transforming it into the positive. And you have many, many examples for this in Chassidus. It's a tremendous lesson as we go into Pesach, that we're looking at Pesach as being Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, going out of the Mitzrayim v'gvulim, the limitations and the constraints of our lives today. Everyone has their own challenges, their own slaveries, their own addictions, their own habits that you'd like to free yourself from. And the lesson here is not just we free ourselves, but those habits can actually be transformed when you use what you've learned, what you, when you use what you have experienced to teach you insights and strengths that you could only come through through those experiences. That's the Makim Mitzrayim B'Bchereya. That the B'Bcherim Mitzrayim, the strongest, the firstborn of Mitzrayim themselves, become an asset that fight the negative and help free the Jewish people and find Geula and Gulas Mitzrayim. <clears throat> the Gemara gives an example, explains it with Avadja, Avadja, the Novi, the prophet. Avadja was a, was a, was a Ger, and he came from Eden. The Gemara asks in Sanhedrin, so then why he, of all the prophets, prophesies the greatest prophecies about Mashiach? Greater than Yeshaya, greater than Yecheskel, greater than Yirmiyahu, and the others, Chavokik and Yeshaya, and so on. So it says, because he came from Edim, and Geul is about transformation, and the Gemara uses the classic expression cited in Tanya, Meneu bay Abba, Lizde bay Narga, or sometimes it says Lizel bay Narga. Now, what does that mean? That to cut down a tree, you need the tree, the wood of the tree to cut down a tree. The axe that's made out of the wood, the handle of the axe, is necessary to cut down a tree because that's transformation. That from within, today you have examples for it in antibiotics or homeopathy, where you use a strain of a virus or of a bacteria to fight the bacteria, to immunize. And there, as I said, other examples that can be used in this type of approach and it, and it applies to every situation that we're in. People who've gone through difficult situations, besides getting out of it, they also have a keen insight and a keen level of refinement and light that they have grown toward and they can help others in that fashion, in, that, in healing as well. In the words of the end of chapter 7 in Tanya, that the Baal Tshuva, because of the great thirst, that leads to our tshuva ma'ava that only a person so thirsty could have such passion. Someone who's always been sated and drank and never had that thirst could never have that type of intensity. Okay. Let's go now to questions. Question number one about the neshama. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I find it difficult to identify with my soul being divine. What can I do about this? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, it's so hard for me to identify with the soul, with the neshama. Learning chassidus, how precious, lofty, close the neshama is to Hashem. A piece of Hashem. There's a voice in me that constantly says, quote, you have no shaykhs to this soul. You have no relationship to this soul. How can I be more accepting of this fact? Okay. Well, this is, of course, 
connects to any type of self-doubt, that even if you're told by people you love, by people you trust, that you have potential, that you are worthy, we sometimes feel we're not. Now the reasons for this are, are many. They can be due to an environment that we grew up in that constantly berated us, put us down, criticized us. Where you, stop, you lose your self-confidence. You're always second-guessing yourself. You are basically imposed upon to please others and not really feel confident in your own successes. This can be due to bullying. It can be due to peer pressure, social pressure, media. Many, many factors in life that can help beat us up and not believe in ourselves. So when we're told that we have a soul, that the soul in you is pure, it's divine. Created B'Tselem Elikim, as the Chumash puts it. Everyone has created B'Tselem Elikim in the image of God. That God breathed, literally breathed, imbued His Spirit into, your, into our nostrils, into our souls. And the soul, that's why it's called Neshama. Neshama also is read Neshima, breath. The breath of God is the soul of a human being. And as the Alter Rebbe explains in chapter 2 of Tanya in detail, that when there's Vayipach, Vayipach isn't just he put a stamp on it, he touched it. Vayipach means he blew into it. And with intensity, when you like blow into a balloon, you use all your using all your energy coming from within. He imbued his primius into the soul, and that's why everyone is a mamish. That's what it stated. The question now is why can you not identify with that? Which makes the, the question only compounded by the fact all of us would like to believe in ourselves. Someone gives you a compliment, you'd like to believe that's what you're capable of. It's one thing if someone says to you a negative thing and you say, hey, you know, you hurt my feelings. I think I have more potential than that. But you're being told that you're, more, you're greater and loftier than you know on your own. We'd all want to embrace that. And yet, there's a voice inside of us that doubts, that questions, that is not sure. So, there's two things that have to be done when you hear that voice. Number one, you have to do everything possible to suppress it. It's your enemy. See it as an enemy, not a realistic voice. It's a voice that's distorting and wants to weaken your resolve and demoralize you. Number two, focus on the positive. You're told you have a soul, you have potential. That potential means you can achieve certain things. Why don't you try? Get involved in the project. Volunteer for something. Do it with someone else or make it a little easier. Do things. That's how we succeed. If a person will keep saying, I don't even want to try because I don't think I'm capable, you're undermining yourself. You become your own worst enemy. You don't even want to try. What, where would we be if we didn't try anything? Here you're told you have the potential, you have the possibility. And try. Try something small, little successes. And even if there's a setback, don't give up. This is the key to all success. Not even in the, in the spiritual sense or in a religious sense or in a faith sense. You look at any coach in any area of life. That's the key, is to help build that confidence in ourselves. We have far more greater potential than we can ever imagine. I'm sure anyone agrees with that. Because how could you argue with that? The only thing is you may not believe in yourself. You may feel weak. You may feel lack of courage to try. So that's why two things... You have to eliminate and repress any such feelings and most importantly get involved in positive things and suddenly you see, hey, you know, I could do something I didn't think I was able to. 
Be around people, a third thing, that believe in you. Not people who constantly help support your negative self-image. Don't be around people who feel that way about themselves as well. Be around people who believe in themselves and believe in you and give you a chance. And you'll see things, miracles will happen. You'll see that magic emerge, the magic of your own neshama. Now, I'm sure I've talked about this topic a number of times. I didn't even look to re- for references because topics about self-doubt, self-esteem, all fit into this category. Let's go to the next question. I just want to point out here, these questions came in the last few months. I'm catching up all the time, but there's always new questions. So please, if you sent in a question, usually a follow-up to a previous episode, I'll do immediately because it's a follow-up. And sometimes if it's timely, I may address it earlier. But they will all be addressed. And people have told me, last week I received a few letters. They said, you know, I wrote you a letter a few months ago. I I submitted a a question and I never thought you'd answer. And thank you so much for answering. Yes, it's all documented. We save them all. And we go in order as they were received, as except with a few exceptions. So please do not hesitate to write. And again, it's at MeaningfulLife.com slash my life. Next question. How can we attribute levels to God? This really belongs in a chassidus question, but here, as you'll see later, the chassidus question is a certain overlap. So I felt I'll do it here and then talk about it some more throughout this program. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, learning that everything is but Hashem, he's referring to Enoid Movade, everything is godly energy. God is everywhere and within everything. And the true energy, the true reality of all existence is really Hashem. So he says, learning that everything is but Hashem, I don't know if it's a he, this person writes, learning that everything is but Hashem, I walk around throughout my day and try to see how everything fits into Hashem's oneness, Hashem Echad. However, what's hard to wrap my head around is how can it be that Hashem is divided into levels? Because clearly, I'm elaborating, the universe has a hierarchy. It's made up of structure on every level possible. Generally, Deimim Tzamei Achaim mineral, vegetable, animal, human being. And within each of them, there are many species. Everything, this world is made up of a hierarchy of higher and lower, of time and space, and on low levels, also conceptually, not just in physical world, but also in spiritual world. So the question is, since God is one, how do you wrap, can it be that, how how do you, it's hard to wrap my head around is how it can be that Hashem is divided into levels. For example, we learned that the Nisham is the closest thing to Hashem, as I just elaborated upon in the previous question. Then we have Melochim, etc., etc. We have angels. And we have other levels. We have spheres, and we have Hecholos, and all the levels that we talk about, Atzilus, going up, Asiya, Yitzira, Bria, Atzilus, and higher. How can anything be closer or farther to Hashem? Everything is Him. Okay. So first let me refer you to episodes 87, 128, and 156, where I talked about overlap, not directly this question, but touched upon this question, and allow what I'm going to say now, I'm sure I said then at some point. So this is a question actually asked in Chassidus, and in Kabbalah for that matter. That's the biggest question of all. How do you reconcile Hashem Echad unity with, 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 the, with the multitude, with diversity? And this is actually one of the reasons that there are spheres, because the discussion of the spheres, that there are ten spheres, is on one hand the spheres are God's instruments, so there's definitely a distinction between Chachmet and Malchus, through the ten spheres. On the other hand, 
the spheres are not, we know God is love, you in me this year, he's beyond the spheres. The classic disagreement between the Rambam who says, he's one with his knowledge, he's one with his attributes, and Maral says, God is beyond us, how could you say he's one? And Chassidus, in Tanya, right in the beginning, in chapter 2 and other places, the Alta Rebbe explains that you can reconcile it. How? Because that's Silas. God manifests through these structure. Higher than Atzillus and higher than that, God is beyond that. So, and then there's, of course, the different opinions of the Kabbalists, whether the spheres are Elikus or are they Nivroim? Are they divine or are they itself creations? And the different opinions and how they're reconciled. All this is about addressing the issue how from Ahdus came Ribui, how from unity came many. And, and you see, from all of this, we don't just say God can do anything He wants. You see that God it makes the effort to explain it in ways that He can manifest in different ways. The Medrash puts it this way. God has different names, but we know there's only one God. So He says, It's one God, but I'm called by my name. When I'm going chesed, I'm called kale. When I'm doing kindness, when I'm in ju- sitting in judgment, I'm called elikim. When I'm fighting a battle, I'm called tzvoyis. So the names are based on the actions, which is all part of the discussion of how much that attributes to God himself. Here's not the place to go into that. Here I want to answer this question. Then, of course, there's the famous Avedis HaKedish that says, from Ibn Gabay, who writes, Meir Ibn Gabay, the great Kabbalist of the early 12th century, um, he writes, or 13th century, he writes, that the Abishtim, because God is perfect and complete, just like he has a power in the infinite, meaning in unlimited, he too has the power to create gvul, limit. And hence we have the concept of and it's all part of, because if not, because not, you're weakening his shleimus. So the, the fact that unity is part of God, and the fact that there's multitude, that there are many different things, is not a diminishing. It means God has the power to create many and to manifest in many. Now, it doesn't mean the essence of God is obviously beyond the multitude. But you know something? The essence of God is also beyond Echod. We have the level of Yachid, and then even beyond Yachid. Can you call God one? You just say one because we can't say many, God forbid. Unity of God, God's oneness. But is it really one and not many? It's beyond one, and it's beyond many, and therefore that oneness can also manifest in many different forms. In the words of the Mittler Rebbe, one more point, that Ardus Apshuta, Pshitus expresses itself in an infinite amount of details. Infinite amount, because that's part of its power to express itself in every possible way. So when you talk about how God manifests so-called, quote-unquote, in the natural way, if God extends himself in manifestation, we're talking about, remember, God has built the Mitzvah Nimtza. He's not defined by exist, anything existential. But if you're going to define God as an existence, then of course it's going to manifest in unity. Everything is connected. But if you're going to talk about the next level, God can choose within that unity. Like he says in Ayim Beis from the Rebbe Rashab, the Bal Yortzeit, the Bal Haistalkus Vahilula, I should say, that part of the Bligvul, Eir Bligvul, is that he has the capacity to manifest in one. Think of an artist that can draw infinite types of art, then he chooses to draw one piece of art. That's one, that choice of one of one type or another type called the ten spheres 
is one of part of an extension of his infinite capacity. So when it comes from our perspective, we look at it this way. When we're ma'achet Hashem, we want to connect every detail of existence to the divine. It's an, another form of a divine expression. And like it is in any type of harmony within diversity, think of the organism, a human being. Are you one or are you made up of parts? You're one. A healthy body functions as one. That one has many different parts that define the holistic organism. But it's one organism in many different expressions. Many different musical notes in one symphony. Many different colors and shades in one beautiful portrait. So first we begin by looking for the detail in the mamala kalalmin, finding the divine in every detail and every level. Then we come to even higher level of abstraction and realize God is beyond these details and you find the connection between them all or the one makiv dikim, save of the transcendent energy that unites them all. Then you come to discover even higher than that, that God is even beyond save of calm, beyond transcendence. And then you realize that you can come to find a unity and diversity and all of it joins together and is all part of the great, great beautiful world and beautiful existence of say the Rishtalshas that God created. Next question, which is in a way an extension of this. It may have even come from the same person. How can we say that some souls are closer to God than others? I guess I'm bothered also by the fact that it's hard for me to make three, these differences between me and others. Like Hashem says, you have a neshama, so you're, so you're closer to me. And my Indian friend sitting next to me on the plane, who is an accomplished physician living so peacefully to bring goodness to this world, while I'm this unaccomplished young lad, makes me feel like what gives me the right to see myself as more precious than him. It's hard to make these distinctions. I don't want to look at myself as higher or better or more precious. I just want to live normally serving Hashem the best I can. So this now applies, of course, to the same idea with souls. If God created everything and created all human beings in the divine image, and everything has a soul in some way, so why do we speak about better, not better, and here a more accomplished person has, has, is a lower level than someone that is not accomplished because he's Jewish or whatever other reason? An excellent question. Can we make the, God is indivisible? and therefore the energy in the souls. But just as I said before with diversity, diversity does not mean that one is superior to the other. When we talk about the diversity of existence, we look at it, they're all necessary, indispensable components because the same God created them all. So even if they have different roles, they all have a divine role. They all have a divine purpose. Nothing in this world was created for no reason. Everything was created, nothing for no reason. For waste, God forbid. Everything God created in this world, He created for His glory, for His honor. Not one fiber of existence, not one cell is not that way. And yet, as I explained, that doesn't contradict hierarchy. That doesn't contradict multitude. That doesn't contradict diversity. That's actually the beauty of it. That there's a unity within the diversity because everyone's doing their role. A human body could never function properly if, everyone was, if every organ and every limb and every detail was doing the same thing. Music would never be music if it was, one, it was just one musical note. And beauty would never be beauty if it wasn't diversity. As beautiful as the color blue may be, the color red, you don't have beauty until you have harmony within diversity. 
Now, as far as the Jew and non-Jew is a discussion I've had at different times, and I'll refer you to episodes 85, 125, and 130. But remember, within the Jewish people also we have a Kohen who can go into the Beis Amikdash and a Levite. A Kohen God is the only one that can go into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, but not any other day. As we, as we will read in, in coming chapters. And the Yisrael can't go in, in any of the places of the Holy, the Kedush or the Kedush Kedush. Is that discrimination? Is that inferiority? Let's not forget, Mashiach is going to come from base of David. That's Shevet Yehuda. He's a Yisrael. He cannot go into the Holy of Holies. Not because he's less, because everyone has their role. There's a role to play. And when you don't think, you know, in the business world or in this material world, we become so accustomed that we have teams. We compete. Who's better? Country clubs. But these are human competition. These are human... Um, these are human machinations. These are man-made institutions. When it comes to the, in the eyes of God, the concept of better or worse is not in the lexicon. Everything has in its area that it has to accomplish, it's the best possible thing in that area. The fact that there's a chosen nation for something does not mean that God didn't choose others to do something else. As I said, that's really going out of the scope of this discussion, and I referred you to episodes where I discussed this. So the answer is, no, when you look at a person sitting near you, whether it's an Indian doctor, or it's, even if he's not a doctor, and even if he's a student like you are, he has a role to play. As, and, and whether it's a she, she has a role to play. God created them for a purpose to fulfill their spiritual destiny, each one in their way, of turning, civilizing the world, transforming a hostile world, a materialistic world, into a divine, refined, giving nurturing spiritual environment and everyone has their unique way of doing so that's what you have to look at and you should discuss that with him and we have the universal laws that God gave divine laws given at Sinai to the entire human race of goodness and kindness that are tools to change individual life and and globally the world into a home for God each in their own way okay with that, let's go to the next question. As I said, there will be some overlapping discussion as we speak shortly in the Chassidus question. Okay. Teenagers learning Rambam. When we're learning Rambam, aren't there some sections that are inappropriate for teenagers? Rabbi Jacobson, I'm not exactly sure how to express my question, so please feel free to rephrase it. What concerns me, and I don't know what the Hashkofa Hashkafa means the perspective or the philosophy would be on this issue. When teenagers take, when teenagers take on Chitas and Rambam, and there are, and they're not, are there not, especially in Rambam, concepts like in the section on illicit relationships that could be inappropriate for 13, 14, 15-year-olds to deal with? Unlike Chumash, the Rambam goes into some detail that could be confusing and disturbing to such young teens. Is it in fact appropriate for them to be studying this, especially on their own without adult guidance and input? Thank you for all that you do and for caring. Well, first of all, I'm not sure I understand your distinction. In Chumash, some things are extremely explicit and actually quite disturbing if you read it on the surface level. Stories about not just illicit stuff, Cain killing Hevel what the sons of Noach did to their father, Leit and his daughters, Yehuda and Tamar, even the brothers selling their brother into slavery, 
It means the list goes on, and the Torah does not mince words. And there are Rashi's and other things that also speak quite explicitly. So the question really is about Torah in general. And the answer is we don't censor Torah for one simple reason. Torah is Torah Hashem. God gave the Torah. God created everything in this world. In Torah, even Yaakov and Esav, Hamud and Baparsha, are also Torah. Even when the Torah talks about something really evil, in the Torah it's Kedusha. So that's number one. It all originates from that. The fact that some people can misinterpret it or interpret it on their terms in a grubber way, in a callous way, that's what we have to train people, how to read something and understand. When it says Adam and Chava were naked in the garden. Naked is naked. And children read it and adults read it. And then it says they were ashamed of their nakedness. They covered themselves. So, so someone could say, well, as soon as you say naked, it elicits all kinds of negative thoughts. No, explain what naked is. We're all created and born naked. It's the way God created the human being. There's nothing wrong with it. But there's wrong in your privacy. It's an intimate part of your body. Once there was a chet etzadaz, there are reasons. They had to cover themselves. They were self-conscious. A newborn child is not self-conscious of these matters. So it's our self-consciousness about these issues that is the problem, more than the issues themselves. That's number one. Number two, when a person learns teta with a proper teacher, they will teach it like that in a very pure way, untainted, unjaded. I remember learning many of these things when I was a kid. Frankly, I had no clue what I was talking about. In Gemara, you learn all kinds of things about intimacy and relationships, appropriate ones, inappropriate ones. It's all conceptual and abstract. But you learn it. You learn it because it's part of life, and then later you understand it. We don't censor things based on our own comfort or discomfort. It's all about learning how to teach it, and teaching it with Yiddish Shemayim, without any type of your own little cynicism or giggling and so on, is the key to it all. I once mentioned that the Friedrich Rebbe had three daughters, and when they were looking for a tutor, the Rebbe Rashab and the Friedrich Rebbe, so they asked the tutor, well, how is he going to teach the parsha of Akedah? Akedah Yitzchak, it can be very violent. Avram is about to, to offer Yitzchak. The teacher said, I'm going to skip it, because it will frighten the children. And they immediately said, you're not for us. Why? Because children are innocent. You can teach it, teach it purely. Don't project your adult issues on children. That's the response. So we learn Rambam. Things they understand, they understand. Things they don't understand, they don't understand. And so be it. It's a good teacher. We'll teach it in a very pure way. And if they come and ask, what is this about? You see, Taylor addresses all issues of life, including relationships, including marriage, including things that right now are not relevant to you, but will be relevant one day. I don't see any issue with explaining it in that fashion. Okay, next question. This is, of course, one of the painful topics, and perhaps viewer discretion advised. Um, <clears throat> inappropriate online content. How do I deal with being addicted to inappropriate online content? Or as someone else wrote, how do I deal with online addictions? Another question is, how do I know if I'm addicted to inappropriate content online? Is 90 days clean a good test? So I spoke about this in episode four. Four. Just to show how it was a priority. And interestingly, and one of the essays in previous years, I'm not sure, I think it was last year, in episode 219, I reviewed an essay on this topic as well. So because it's a prevalent, unfortunate issue, and one that comes up again and again, I decided I'll speak about it again, though I'm not going to repeat everything I said back then. 
But briefly, and I've actually spoken to people who have struggled with this issue. We're talking, obviously, not preempting it. We're talking, which, of course, is the best approach, which we've talked other times. Talking about once a person has, unfortunately, fed into this habit. So the first thing I want to mention, the word addiction is also a word that you have to be very wary of using. Once a person describes themselves as an addict, on one hand, yes, it's a certain acknowledgement, and therefore you know you have a problem. Better than someone says, I don't have a problem. On the other hand, you don't want to label yourself or anybody an addict. Because then you could almost think of yourself as damaged goods. Okay, too late for me. So I'd rather not use that word. Let's look at a proclivity. You've gotten used to it. It's a habit, habitual behavior. So this one has its particular challenges. So first, dealing with it. Dealing with it, interestingly, many people who've gone through it and have healed from it and actually are very clean and don't go back to it, say that one of the big challenges is not just the actual being drawn to it, it's acknowledging that you have a problem and being able to stand up to the shame involved. The shame and guilt around it ends up demoralizing you even further and that becomes a problem. The first time you could speak about it with somebody, there's a certain freedom, there's ter- terrible fear. But that freedom is one of the key things to the beginning of a process, to find someone to speak to. So it weakens the shame that we live with. Because the shame ends up demoralizing you, making you more weaker, and therefore just driving you to feed on this drug even further. Then, of course, there's the issue itself. Once you've spoken to someone, then you also, in a sense, can talk to that person when you have a temptation. You have someone to turn to, someone that perhaps can serve as support, as a supervisor. There are different groups today, SA and others, that are excellent in helping create support, knowing you're not alone, knowing you have people who are there to lean on. And also remembering we're not perfect human beings. The fact that a person may have a setback should not put you back to square one. Setback, acknowledge it. Recognize it and move forward. With chassidus especially, the Hesach Hadas idea, the idea that we move on, we don't dwell on the past is vital. Because dwelling on the past just demoralizes. Hesach Hadas does not mean some type of just ignoring it all. It means that when you have an issue, you find a way to not dwell on it. So that's the next point, is that find things that you excite you. You have to find good things that excite you. At the end of the day, any addiction has now started feeding your chemicals, your dopamine and others in your brain, and it gives you that rush just thinking about it. So you have to find a dopamine, a type of chemical, that, a chemical that's fed by something that gives you pleasure, whether it's volunteering, whether it's writing, whether it's music. Many, many different things that give you also, doesn't mean it's a strong, but it's strong enough that you can turn to it as an alternative. There's recognizing that there is harm to it. Many people dismiss the whole idea. They say, big thing, so watching porn. There's harm. First of all, there's harm to people that are being used in these porn sites. And then there's harm to yourself. It affects how relationships, how you see relationships. It affects your sexuality. It affects expectations. And it creates fantasies that are not real. Because at the end of the day, it's a selfish, narcissistic indulgence. It's not based on a committed, responsible relationship. And all these things are meant to help a person so-called recognize there's a problem. Because I'm sure some of you listening will say, I don't have a problem. You know, once in a while I fall. So first of all, what many of us minimize, it's 
very hard to teach someone if they have a problem to tell have a problem and don't want to acknowledge it and tell them they have a problem. So sometimes things have to happen that you come to discover something breaks, God forbid, or you hit a rock bottom. Nobody should know of that. You come to realize I have to do something about this. <clears throat> but the fact of the matter is, it it's toxic. It contaminates your spirit, your mind, your heart. And that's why people feel that shame. So the key is like the Alta Rebbe says in the beginning of chapter 26 in Tanya. There he uses atzvus. Don't let shame and negative thoughts weaken you. Because if they weaken you, you have no resolve and strength to forge ahead. You don't have the fortitude. So you have to focus on, as I discussed earlier, the positive neshama you have. And where you can release and you can channel it into positive and harness it into positive actions. So is it a difficult battle? Absolutely. I'm not suggesting. And I'm speaking here, of course, not one-on-one. I'm speaking in general terms because one-on-one you have to address everybody has their own particular challenge in this regard. Here I'm speaking in more general, general terms. Do something about it. Don't let it just become part of your status quo. And the first step is to talk to someone. A person cannot free themselves on their own. It frees you and helps free you of the shame and the guilt. Of course, this also comes with that, the punishment. You feel you're going to be punished. And then you start looking, everything, something happens wrong, maybe that's a punishment. All that is demoralizing. The focus has to be not on punishment. The focus has to be you want to get out of it. You want to do whatever it takes. And you want to focus on positive, soulful matters that help a person hold on to something, and you could say proudly at the end of the day, today I did something that helped another person. There's energy in that, and that slowly depletes the energy invested in this negative um, habit. I hope this was helpful. I'm sure we'll talk about it some more. I'd rather not, but if we need to, if anyone has comments, feedback, if you want to add anything for the benefit of others, I'll be happy to read it. I'll be honored to read it. Okay. Okay, we've been doing a little of prayer, davening each week, because as I've said many times, Chassidus says, davening is an ikir, emotional intelligence, emoting with your soul, with God. Ezu Avedi Shebelev. is what defines and shapes us. So you can learn Chassidus and understand the abstraction, you can understand the depth, you can even understand it in practical ways. But when you learn how to apply it to your emotions to your emotional life, dealing with your emotional challenges, including the one we just spoke about. So the Mayak Shalat Alalev and Hesach Hadas are not just theories. They're actually applicable. Davening is a tremendous tool, unfortunately, a best-kept secret. And one maybe one of the, the things that, unfortunately, our art, I can't say was lost, but is hidden from many of us. So I've incorporating recently, every week, something about davening, and questions still come in. So let's just do... Um, some more on Avedis Last week, I addressed the question about how does one get excited about Neshama matters. And I just want to take, and then I'm going to continue with another question in that, that follows up with that question. And it's relevant to our previous topic as well. Getting excited about Neshama matters is not just getting excited about eating a matzah or doing a mitzvah behidur. If you can get excited about that, that's great. Getting excited about your soul. Your soul is what makes you tick. Your soul is filled with rich resources. When you love somebody, when you're kind to somebody, you're exercising your chesed. 
When you exercise discipline, saying no, withholding, you're exercising your gvura. And the same with other attributes, including compassion and determination and so on. So the key thing is to get in touch with who you are and actualize it. We emulate God's ways. That's getting your soul involved. And excitement is when you feel proud about it, when you feel accomplished, when you feel this is your calling. Everybody can come to that. You don't need to be on the highest level to come to that. Because we all have talents that were given to us by God in order to use it, as I said, to honor God, to bring divine divinity into this world, to bring godliness into this world. So following up on that, the next question of that person wrote, you mentioned eliciting ave and yira. That's love and awe. I don't know what that is. In Tanya, Peter Gimel, Alter Rebbe warns about the demyenes shav, even for the one who's intensely working at it. That means illusions, the illusionary thinking. And I'm not sure I know what Avon Yira means to a regular person like me. Am I even shaykh to it? Am I even capable of it? And the answer is absolutely yes. Everyone has their level of Avon Yira. We say every day, We would not be told to say that more than once a day if we're not capable. That does mean that everyone's capable in the same level. No, everyone has their levavcha, their nafshecha, levavcha, nafshecha, and their moedecha. So in simple English, you have to find the ava and the yira that works for you. In other places, we say yira Hashem. So simple part, ava is a sense of closeness. Yira is a sense of respect. I've spoken about this a number of times. Let's use a very gashmistic example. When you connect to something in life, you see some beautiful, beautiful sight in nature. So there's a certain warmth that it elicits. And then there's a certain awe that it elicits. Relationships in your life, a spouse, people you love. There's love, closeness, intimacy. And then there's respect of their space, of their uniqueness, even of their mystique. The same thing is with Hashem. Hashem has closeness to us. When we say benching, we say, thank you for giving me the food that you blessed me with. Thank you for giving me health, parnas and livelihood. Thank you for giving me a family, children. This is, when you think about it, evokes and elicits elements of love for something that has blessed you so much. Or is when you start thinking about God that beyond. Imagine a God that created this universe. I mentioned before an artist. This is one piece of art of infinite possibilities and then he's beyond being an artist. You say, wow, what kind of mystique, mystery, the grandeur, the wonder, the flaw of Elokus. That elicits Yira. In simple terms. How does it manifest? As he says in Tanya. The closeness brings mitzvahs. I'll do a mitzvah because I feel close. And the awe creates leisase. Be careful about something because there's a higher presence. There's a higher reality that said that's not appropriate. Refrain because you want to connect to something even greater. Okay. So we did the tefillah for today. And now we will go to a follow-up. Short follow-up, last week I spoke about website responsibility to its viewers. As you can imagine, we had plenty of comments, interestingly, mostly positive. One comment that reflects many, thank you for being a sober voice of reason amidst the, in the fray. The extremism really clouds the issues and becomes very difficult to trust anybody. So thank you for that. This was a pretty common expression that I've heard from many and I really appreciate it. Because that's exactly my intention. My intention is not to take a side. My intention is to try to present the Teirich Siddhis approach. Which of course includes what Rabbanim say. 
and all the respect for that, but does not include vendettas, does not include vengeance, does not include crusades and witch hunts. That's not a Tata approach. Tata looks at something with clear, objective eyes and then applies and says what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. When it comes to a website, as I discussed, the website is responsible. And a website that wants to live up to its credibility will only add their credibility and trust if they act responsibly and they have standards. But to go and start creating a battle, battles are never healthy. Even if something is completely not right, so fine, you have to find ways that either you or others can avoid something. But even that has to be done in a tailor and Did I get any critique? Yes, some people felt I was criticizing the Rabbonim, which I wasn't. Some people felt I was criticizing COL, which I also wasn't. But so be it comes with the turf. As we discussed, I'm also a public figure and it's a public program. So just like with websites, I feel I have a great responsibility and I try to do my best. We all make our mistakes. And I'd be happy to hear and be staying corrected, but also be happy if you acknowledge if I say something that is appropriate or, or, or correct. And it's an open forum, and I never hesitate to read critique as well as read the positive. So please communicate your thoughts, your feelings. See this question. Please explain the idea of Elam Haba, the world to come, and how we can say that some people will not have a share in it how can that be possible when every soul is immortal? Okay, so here was several questions that came in on this topic, and I'll read the questions, and I'll try to answer with the limited time we have, and if I need be, need be, I will continue next week. Dear Rabbi, I find it very hard to wrap my head around some extreme statements that Taylor makes, like some people have no share in the world to come, or only righteous Gentiles have a share. The rest will disappear as if never existed, stuff like that. Hashem created every single creation in this world. All is Hashem. Those that live in the ghetto, committing crimes left and right, were also created by God. I'm sure that they were given a better life. If they were given a better life, they would be better people. How can I walk around judging really anyone making such statements that, oh, that guy over there has no share in the world to come and stuff like that? Sounds so petty and primitive. Can you please resolve this confusion in my head? Thank you. Number two, a different question. What's up with Olam Haba. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, to be honest, it really bothers me when Teddy uses the phrase merited Olam Haba. Like when the Yidin are on Yom Kippur in the times of Shleim HaMelech, they were worried maybe they did, they did wrong by eating and then a baskol, a voice from heaven, came and said, all of you are receiving Olam Haba. What is that supposed to mean? Chassidus seems to teach us not to think about Olam Haba, which is the world to come at all. I hate thinking about the world to come because it makes me feel like my relationship with Hashem is so external. I definitely don't think I feel what the Alter Rebbe felt when he said, all I want is you, not, my, not your Olam Haba. But this is how I would describe I'm feeling. I hate thinking about my relationship in a way, or if I do good, I get a candy. If not, I don't get a candy, etc., etc. What is the correct way to think about this? And one more final question in this regard. I'm confused. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, can you please explain what it means when we say he acquired Olam Haba? I don't understand how Hashem would create, who creates everything the way they are, nevertheless can make it that someone won't merit the world to come like a non-righteous Gentile. Another question. We have teachings that teach us that bad people were just created to give a Jew the choice between good and evil. I guess that's a schus for that evil person that Hashem uses him to test a Jew. This evil person is like Hashem's emissary. 
I guess my questions are stemming from the fact that I very much strive to see how Hashem is an all-good God and a just God. And although I might not ever understand this fully, I believe 100% that Hashem is all-good. But in this world, we see such stark differences like good and evil, meriting all the Mahaba, etc. I don't know how this all fits in with all good God. Please help my brain. Okay, so firstly, whatever I say, I want to say, I refer you to episode 75, 76, 248. It's not directly connected, but it overlaps. As I said, I'll begin the answer. And there's a lot of technical details. So you recall I spoke earlier about levels of souls. That that's not contradiction to God being everywhere and God being within everything. Just like, for example, saying, is there more of God in, a, in the holy temple, Beit Samikdash, when it stood in Rishalayim? Is there more God in a synagogue on Yom Kippur than in the middle of a Sunday night in the street? Obviously, there's one unity, Hashem Hashem Echad. But there are places in the universe that have less filters and layers and are more transparent and therefore manifest in, a whole, in an easier way godliness. And there are places that are darker, so though there's a God in there somewhere, God's divine sparks, they can be hidden and concealed to the point they could even be so dark, like it says in Samachay, the Rebbe Rashab writes, that it could be like like a, a holy, like a kosher piece of meat that fell into a non-kosher pot. So even though it was kosher, but now it's become consumed by the non-kosher. So think of like a spark that's been swallowed up by darkness. So it's still there. And even when it says in Shol at the end of chapter 1 in Tanya, that the darkest has no good at all, the Tzamech Tzedek and the Rebbe Rashab and other, and other Rabbeim explain, meaning on their own they have no good. But there's always a divine spark because nothing can be without a divine spark. So this also applies to human beings. Nishamis, we don't measure Nishamis. These are God's souls. And as he says in Perik Lamed Beis in Tanya, we don't know which soul is greater. The fact that some people live their lives not living up to their soul's destiny, let's say a cruel person, a bad person, doesn't mean they have no soul. Even though he sins, there's a soul. It means that his soul is so-called in Golos, trapped like hostage. And that for that reason, this criminal may end up being in prison because he's a danger to others. Even there he has a soul. But he's not fanning his soul. His soul is not manifested in his life. So the work is, how do you get that soul back out to express itself instead of his animal soul expressing itself like he explains in Tanya? So the soul is not impacted. The soul remains, Afal Pishachot soul remains intact. And every morning we say, Neshamesh HaNesat to be Tahirihi. It's pure. What is impacted, think of it like infected arteries that are blocked or clogged that don't allow the blood to reach parts of the body, even though the heart may be intact. I may be asleep, but my heart is awake. And other such examples of expressions. So, is there, a heart, is there differences? Yes, of course there's differences. That's why the Teda has reward and punishment, which really is cause and effect, that a person behaves in a way, like, and like any machine, you work, the machine works the way the operator's manual told you to work, it will work better. A machine does not work the way the God, the, the cosmic engineer, an architect of life, told it to be. We can hurt ourselves. When you put your hand in fire, the fire get, burns your hand, God forbid. When a person does things that the Torah forbids, what's happening? They get hurt, and their soul also gets somewhat hurt. And therefore they need to be cleansed. Just like a fire, like a burned hand, needs to heal. 
So someone say, one second, isn't God everywhere? Yes, God is everywhere, but we have free will. And the godliness that's everywhere can be more concealed, more revealed. It's our job to reveal it. So that doesn't take away from the fact that there are differences, and there are differences based on our behavior. Our behavior has consequences. It's as simple as that. That's the purpose of life. If it had no consequences, the Rambam says, Bechira, you say Chazak, you say Domet Chazak. It's a powerful foundation. Because without that, all of the Torah and obligations and responsibility falls off and commitment. So that's a general statement. As far as the statements about, all these statements about Neshamis, and then it says, and those that don't have. So here's a fundamental question. The soul is part of God. The soul is not a man-made thing. A soul can't be killed. It was never born. It can't die. So how can we say that a soul is, should ever perish? A soul is immortal, as the questioner asked. And the question goes even more, say, cut off. Cut off from your source of life. How could you say cut off? You could say you've severed a connection. It's concealed. Right now, a person could, God forbid, die if they're deprived of oxygen or blood or whatever it may be. But to say cut off, that the soul is cut off forever, a soul is immortal. So it's a very powerful question. Briefly, the answer is, and the Rebbe has a tremendous shima. It's more than a shima. Tshuva Sabiurim. That was printed in the Shins in the, in the 40s. So in Kevis Labavish, in the 6th Gillian, there was Tshuva Sibirim later put together in a book, and it's now printed in Igris Kedish, volume 1, page 141, a letter dated the 16th of Tammuz Tovshin Gimel, that's 1943, a long letter discussing exactly this, and explaining how at the end of the day, no, there's no such thing as a soul, really, completely, not having a chelik leilam haba. I'm going to elaborate on this more next week, but briefly, the answer question is whether the soul as it was active in your body in this world, in that form and shape, your identity and personality, will that live on forever as a soul? Or does it have to change form due to the behavior, the negative behavior that did sever and did compromise itself? That's in brief. But there's a lot more to it than what I've just said. And we have to reconcile our Rambam and Pedichess in the Rambam and the Ramban and other opinions on the matter, what is Kodesh, and what is Elam Haba, and what does it mean to be cut off from Elam Haba, or those that will not have a share in the world to come. So that I'm going to leave for next week. I just gave the general introduction, but remember, the Neshama is, a, is part of the Divine, and the Neshama never, ever ends or dies, and cannot really be cut off. It's just a matter of what manifestation, and that we will discuss more in detail in the next week, and coming weeks. I'll say one more thing about Elam Haba itself. The Rambam says Elam Haba doesn't mean the world to come, meaning the future. It means the world that follows this world. It's the cause and an effect. When you do something positive, that positive creates energy. That energy is what come back, come back, comes back to you in Elam Haba. So obviously if it's a positive energy, it will lead you a positive energy. If it's a negative energy, it has to be addressed and dealt with. How do we get rid of the negative energy? And what happens after you do? And this deals with Gehenim, hell, and, and other type of retribution, which we, as I said, we'll talk about. But remember, just to keep the point in mind, I'm not leaving the question hanging. Every soul, one way or another, will find its way back. Question is, faster or slower? And what form and, 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 uh, and shape and what identity and personality? 
So we will continue this. Let me go now um, to the, the Hasidic the essays of this year's essay contest. Last year's essay contest, I should say. Three essays we're going to do. And this is still from last year's contest. The first is The Path Toward Overcoming Anxiety. Rivke Bar Chaim, 19 years old, Brooklyn, New York, a student at Brno's Chomesh Academy. Imagine for a moment that you need to go to sleep early because you have to be on time to work the next day. This is crucial because your boss values punctuality over all else. After speedy preparation, you hop into bed, close your eyes, and try to fall asleep. However you find that you are able to do so, visions of your boss looking disappointed while telling you off plague your mind. And it goes on to a whole bunch of thoughts that lead to embarrassment and anxiety. When this kind of anxiety begins to overwhelm and overtake you, it may seem hopeless. However, you can use the advice of the Alter Rebbe and Chassidus in order to overcome it. The thing missing from this anxiety-filled process is the thought process, Hashem written as Hashem meaning God. We learn from the Alter Rebbe's book on Jewish philosophy, the Tanya, that not only does Hashem create and control everything, but that everything He does is good. And he goes on to explain this theme and applying it to overcoming anxiety. Moyich Shal Ta'alev, self-control. Nice essay. And you can read this essay, as I said earlier, meaningflife.com slash mylife, as well as receive these essays as they're posted by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, our weekly email. The next essay is From Problem to Solution, Mendel Calderon, age 22, Sao Paulo, Brazil, student in Moscow. Short essay in Hebrew, from problem to solution, and does exactly that. It's a very short, like a page, a page, and, a, it's a page and a half, and talks about how you look at a problem and how you get to a solution. I'll let you lead it yourself, but basically it's about the positivity that solutions come from the soul, they come from God, and that's the way to approach every particular problem. And finally, the third essay for this week, Hasidic Dating. Listen to the body and the mind. Chava Hinzi, age 27, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Jewish Women Center Director, Chabad at UPenn is her job. Okay, she writes, The most read article of the New York Times website of 2017 was entitled, Why You Will Definitely Marry the Wrong Person. More than world politics and climate change, people are thinking and worrying about the state of marriage. Everyone knows it's not in great shape. And for many, it seems doomed to failure. This makes sense when we look at it from a Hasidic perspective because marriage is a crucial part of a person's life. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I skipped a line. Everyone knows that it's not in great shape. In fact, with a high divorce rate, it is a wonder that people enter into marriage at all. Yet they do. Because there's something about marriage that remains enticing even when logically it may seem doomed. This makes sense when we look at it from a Hasidic perspective because marriage is a crucial part of a person's life. It is when two halves of a soul become one. It is the beginning of building a family and forming another chain in the course of Jewish history. And goes on to explain, based on Hasidus, how dating should be transformed, how to date properly. With nice quotes, very interesting quotes from the Rebbe and how, what marriage really is, not just two people together, but a fundamental change in a person's status and life. And how then that should translate into, she quotes, three steps to use in dating as a, as a way to move confidently to marriage. 
ascertaining that a person has the same values as you, assessing the person's character, and practical aspects are very important, but without an emotional and physical spark, they can lead to marriage. They cannot lead to marriage. The third piece is, must be a drawing close of the heart. Very well done essay, and thank you for that. So with that, we conclude this week's episode 256 of My Life Chassidah Supplied. As always, it's an honor. Everyone should have a very liberating and emancipating Chedesh Nissen, starting from Beis Nissen, as we move toward next week's Shabbos HaGodl, Yud Aleph Nissen, Yud Gimel Nissen, and into Pesach itself, the ultimate holiday, Reish the head, the first of all the holidays, the one that brings us to freedom, freedom from all our trappings, all our fears and all our insecurities and everything that keeps us from becoming the best who we can be and fulfilling God's mission given to each of us uniquely in this world. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone be blessed. As I said, and we'll be back next week. Thank you and be well.